Hello and welcome to another edition of Todd Talks Bible. This engaging discipleship-based Bible study is sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. And our teacher is Todd Tolles, the founder and director of CDM. A career firefighter captain before entering the ministry, Todd founded Church Discipleship Ministries to equip and empower believers to fulfill your calling to be a spiritual warrior dedicated to fulfilling the Great Commission. Let's listen in now as Todd Talks Bible. So is the Millennial Kingdom real or just a metaphor? Well, let's talk about it coming up next. Hi, brothers and sisters. My name is Todd Tolles. I'm with Church Discipleship Ministries. I want to welcome you to our discipleship program, Todd Talks Bible. Today is an exciting day because we are now entering into part three of our study on the book of Revelation. And part three, if you remember from the outline, is called The End is the Beginning. The End is the Beginning. And that refers to how the end of the book of Revelation is talking mainly about the beginning of eternity and our time forever in heaven with God. Now today we'll start our conversation on the millennial kingdom found in Revelation chapter 20. But it's going to take us two weeks to get through this material. Why? Because believe it or not, a lot of people are divided over this chapter. Most people take it as literal truth in the Bible, which I have said from the very beginning is how we will study the book of Revelation from the literal viewpoint. So most of those people who believe, yes, indeed, Jesus will have a real kingdom on earth lasting a thousand years are called millennial kingdom supporters or millennialists. Now, the other group, does not believe that Revelation chapter 20 is literal. They believe it's a metaphor. And we call these people amillennialists or amillennial teaching. A lot of people just say amill for short. Now, what does this amillennialism mean? What's this big theological term mean? Well, literally, if you look at it from the Latin It means, A, means no, so it means no millennial, no millennial. And it refers to the fact that they don't believe the millennial kingdom is real as portrayed in Revelation 20. They think it's more of a metaphor. In fact, most people who are amil in their viewpoint teach that Revelation 20 is symbolic of the church age. That the thousand-year age that's mentioned in Revelation 20 is really referring to 2,000 years and counting of the church age. Now, most amillennialists are also adherents to the false doctrine of replacement theology. Now, what is that doctrine? Well, it's a false teaching that the church replaced the Jews in the covenant with God, with the nation of Israel, because of their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah, Jesus. And that the church is now the metaphorical fulfillment of those covenant promises with Israel. Now, this heresy tends to be very anti-Semitic. So it's not a good teaching at all. And we're going to show a lot of scripture today that disproves it. But also, amillennialism goes hand in hand, not just with replacement theology, but with preterism. Now, what does that mean? Well, a preterist is someone who believes that all prophecy in the Bible has already been fulfilled. In other words, they say from Revelation 20 all the way back to Genesis has already been fulfilled. And that means they believe most of the book of Revelation that we look to as still yet to come, future prophecy, they look at it as already having been fulfilled in history. Now, unfortunately, preterists and amillennialists tend to kind of go real loose with the facts of history. And they try and force history into its preconceived concepts and a preconceived mold of metaphors and symbols. They also ignore certain historical events because these events do not fit their false viewpoints. The chief example of this is that they totally ignore the rebirth of the nation of Israel as being totally insignificant. But in reality, 
the events that led to Israel becoming a nation again were in direct fulfillment with several prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Old Testament prophecies tend to disprove this false teaching of amillennialism. So do some of the scriptures in the New Testament as well. And we're going to look at a lot of them today. In fact, too many scriptures to post each one up on the screen as I read it. Otherwise, the entire session will be nothing but words you're reading. But I will put a reference up right now on the screen, and this will give you the different references. If you pause your screen, you can copy them down, and then you can read these references along with me in your Bible. The first one is Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 40. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26. Then we'll look at Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 9. Then we're going to go back to Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 24, verses 18 through 23. We will also look at Revelation 20, verses 1 through 2. Then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at some of the Gospels. Luke 14, verses 12 through 15. Mark 14, verses 22 through 25. Luke 22, verse 17 through 30, and 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 26, Acts 1, verses 3 through 8, Luke 9, verses 11 through 26, and that will be our main text of today that we try and apply some truths from. But let's start looking at some of these Old Testament prophecies that disprove our millennialism. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 40, reads this way. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day and the moon and stars to light the night. It is he who stirs the sea into the roaring waves. His name is the Lord Almighty, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel, as I am to do away with the laws of nature. Just as the heavens cannot be measured and the foundation of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider catching them away forever for their sins. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come, said the Lord, when all Jerusalem will be rebuilt with me from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. Measuring line will be stretched out over the hill of Gareb and across to Goa. And the entire area, including the graveyard and ashed up in the valley, and all the fields out to the Kidron Valley on the east, as far as the horse gate, will be holy to the Lord. The city will never again be captured or destroyed. So first of all, we see that God is very clearly saying that he will not do away with his promises to Israel. You know, a lot of to understand amillennialism, you basically, and to you know follow that false teaching, you basically have to say God's going to break His promises with Israel. Most of them, like I said earlier, say it's because of the crucifixion of Jesus that the Jews broke the covenant and have been uh, the covenant no longer is valid for them and it's been replaced with the church. Well, here He says clearly that that's not going to happen. Just like the sun continues to light the day and rises every day and the moon's there every night uh, with the stars. Until you can break those laws of nature, then his covenant still stands with the people of Israel. Plus, he also says in this valley, uh, in this uh, prophecy, I should say, that the city will never again be captured or destroyed. Now, obviously, you either have two conclusions here. One, if he was talking about the Jerusalem being rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity, then you'd have to say that God's a liar and that he broke his word because the city was captured again by the Romans and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. In fact, they were a Roman province for you know many decades before that, but the Romans finally got tired of them and, and took over Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. So this would violate this prophecy if that's your interpretation, uh, like most all millennial people view. 
But no, what he is saying is that there will come a time when he restores this covenant, even though it looks like it won't happen for a long time, just like the sun keeps shining and the moon is still there at night, don't lose hope. He will fulfill his, his, this prophecy. And once they come back, they will never be conquered or destroyed again. Now, this theme continues on in Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26. Now, I'm going to put this one on the screen because it's a long passage, but it's very important that you follow along with what he's saying. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26. The day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good I have promised them. At that time, I will bring to the throne of David a righteous descendant, and he will do what is just and right throughout the land. In that day, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And their motto will be, the Lord is our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will forever have a descendant sitting on the throne of Israel. And there will always be Levitical priests to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices to me. Then this message came to Jeremiah from the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day and the night so that they do not come on their usual schedule, only then will my covenant with David, my servant, be broken. Only then will he no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. The same is true for my covenant with the Levitical priests who minister before me. And as the stars cannot be counted and the sand on the seashores cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister before me. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, have you heard what the people are saying? The Lord chose Judah and Israel, then abandoned them. They are sneering and say that Israel is not worthy to be counted as a nation. But this is the Lord's reply. I would no more reject my people than I would change my laws of night and day, of earth and sky. I will never abandon the descendants of Jacob or David, my servant, or change the plan that David's descendants will rule the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, I will restore them to their land and have mercy on them. So again, in this prophecy, the Lord is saying very clearly that he will not abandon the nation of Israel, regardless of what replacement theologians want to say with that false teaching, regardless of what preterists want to say, regardless of what amillennial people want to say, God says that he will not replace the nation of Israel. And he says that he promised David that he would have an heir on the throne to rule over the people of Israel forever. And he says, I will not break that promise with David. I am more likely to break the laws of nature. I'm more likely to stop the sun from coming up and the stars from shining at night, is what he's saying, before he breaks that vow, that covenant with David. So he says, in fact, he goes, says in verse 20, if you can break my covenant with the day and the night, only then will I break my covenant with David. And we can't stop the sun from shining. We can't stop night from coming and the stars from coming out. So until we can do that, there's no way we can stop this covenant from being fulfilled in a literal fashion, according to what God says. And even though today we still sneer, just like they did in this prophecy, and say, oh, he's rejected the people. He's replaced them with the church. God says that's not true. He says he will never break the covenant with the nation of Israel. Now, this goes on in some other places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 66, verse 7 through 9, we read this. Before the birth pains even begin, Jerusalem gives birth to a son. Who has ever seen or heard anything as strange as this? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, the baby will be born, the nation will come forth. Would I ever bring this nation to the point of birth and not deliver it? Asked the Lord. No, I would never keep this nation from being born, says your God. Now this prophecy in the end of the book of Isaiah is pretty neat. Because first of all, he's comparing the birth of a nation, Israel, this nation, Israel, to the birth of a child. And he also uses kind of a dual prophecy. He talks about the 
Jerusalem giving birth to a son, and you know, uh, you know, Israel. He's kind of referring to the Messiah being born, which he was, and, but he was born in the town of Bethlehem. So now he's kind of referring to the Messiah coming back and being the king. But then it's a, on the second part of this prophecy, he says, has a nation ever been born in a single day? And that's a prophecy. He says, look, I'm going to bring forth this nation again in a single day. You see, with the prophecies in Isaiah, we learned that because of their idol worship, the Babylonians were going to take them captive. But this prophecy says that one day there will be a kingdom again, and it'll happen in one day. Now, from the time that they returned from the Babylonian captivity, they technically weren't a nation. They were always being ruled over by some other empire whether it be uh, the Persian Empire or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire. They were always a province under some empire. But this prophecy is talking about them being an independent nation again, and they will be brought forth in a single day. And he, go, he ends this prophecy saying, look, I will never keep this nation from being born again as an independent nation. Now, did this prophecy come true? Absolutely. Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled on November 29, 1947, when the UN voted in one day to make Israel a nation again. This is known as the UN Partition Plan Resolution 181. After this vote, and it happened in just a matter of hours, one day, just like the prophecy said, they were made a nation again. After not being a nation for, well, over 2,000 years not an independent nation, but they in one day were made an independent nation again. And when this proclamation was ratified by the UN, the Jewish people from all over the world uh, faced all types of persecution and resistance and attacks as they rushed back to their homeland. And then Israel officially declared independence on May 14, 1948, and after miraculously beating off all the Arab nations that kept trying to destroy them in those early days, they have remained secure as an independent nation ever since. Now, this prophecy in Isaiah and these events of fulfilling it, you would think would be a watershed moment in people when they're studying prophecy, and it is. And yet the Amil people don't see it as significant. Why? Well, let's look back and see how amillennialism started. It started in the second century. Theologians were trying to explain away the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, why are they trying to explain it away? Well, because so much of the Bible is talking about Jesus coming again as king and Jerusalem by some of the prophecies that we just read, was supposed to be around. But they were misinterpreting those prophecies. They didn't see the huge gap that we've talked about when we read them just a few minutes ago. You know, God said, look, don't worry. They may say that we've abandoned you, but I haven't. Don't worry. If you can stop the sun from rising, it's the only time you have to worry about this covenant being broken. But People in the second century started worrying, how are we going to make the Bible sound true? They were thinking, Jerusalem's been destroyed. And this, this went against all the teaching that the early uh, apostles and the early church was teaching. So they said, we got to make the Bible fit what's going on in, 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 in reality, in the earth today. Now, by the time Augustine was living, and he was born in 354 AD and lived around 430 AD. By the time he was on the scene, uh, amillennialism was, was very well accepted, and he formalized it in his system of theology. Now, before you think, oh, well, it must be true then, don't forget, Augustine also taught the first uh, seeds of predestination. That's where predestination started. When people started thinking God chooses who goes to heaven or hell. It started with Augustine. He really formalized it. 
Now, these false teachings of, of predestination and amillennialism uh, continued on all through the Dark Ages. This replacement theology was very strong in the Roman Catholic Church, that the church had replaced the Jews. And they all continued through the Dark Ages. And then all of a sudden, Calvin came on the scene, and he too uh, threw his two cents in. And as you know, Calvin was definitely pushing predestination. And in fact, he has come up with a theological viewpoint that's now known for his name. It's called Calvinism, that God chooses who goes to heaven and hell. And it's not based on the free will uh, faith of mankind. And we know that to be false. But he was pushing these false teachings also. Now, this isn't the only time that theologians have tried to cram the Bible into what was going on in the world. Uh, in the 1800s, false theologians tried to make the Bible cram into and fit into the theories that Darwin was teaching at the time. And so they started coming up with all kinds of uh, theistic evolution or ways of the Bible was a metaphor when it talked about creation because Darwin was considered to be uh, so you know, wonderful in his teachings of Darwinian evolution. Now, it didn't stop there. I mean, even today, we see this tendency of false teachers and false theologians trying to cram the Bible to fit what they think is acceptable in society. Today, false teachers are saying that the Bible doesn't really say homosexuality is a sin and that transgenderism is not a sin. It's okay. They keep saying all this stuff, again, trying to cram the Bible into what society has said. And false teachers have always tried to force biblical prophecy to fit human events. Instead of just waiting for and being patient for God to fulfill the prophecies as he promised to do so. So, when it comes back to the prophecies of Israel, all millennialists tend to ignore the fulfillment of these prophecies, especially when Israel became a nation again in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. Now, it doesn't just stop there. This amillennialism has gone all through the church in many, many ways. Now, I would probably say there's two main camps, either amill or what we call the millennial kingdom viewpoint. And that pretty well is the dividing point for a lot of Christians now when it comes to prophecy. Uh, here's a list of some of the denominations that hold to some form of amillennialism or in preterism and replacement heresies. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Lutheran Church, the Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Amish, Mennonite, and the Church of Christ denominations. All these denominations, though, have a long history of being uh, liberal or teaching some form of Nicolaitanism, in other words, the hierarchy of the, the priest or the pastor, which we've shown you is very wrong and a heresy. And they also have a uh, history of replacement theology, saying that the Jews uh, have been replaced by the church. And many of these denominations kind of backed a lot of uh, anti-Semitic behavior uh, from society over the centuries. So all these denominations have had that I've listed have problems with their doctrine. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, as we've already shown you, is uh, probably going to be part of the one world religion, one of those horns of the, the beast of the earth, that one world religion that's ran by the false prophet. So needless to say, if these denominations have so much trouble with other doctrines of the Bible, why do people want to take their word for this prophetic doctrine? I don't think we should. And I think the scripture that I've, the little bit of scripture I've just shown you already kind of disproves amillennialism totally. And I would not follow that. It is not scriptural. And it tends to uh, lead to a perversion of history, trying to force history to fit your metaphor and your symbolism. And it also tends to lead to a very destructive doctrine called replacement theology that is really just anti-Semitism veiled. So, I think I've shown enough scripture that amillennialism uh, 
has enough evidence to say it's not a valid theory, that we really shouldn't go that viewpoint. But now let's look at the Millennial Kingdom viewpoint. There's plenty of evidence that supports it. Now let's start looking at some of that. First of all, what does the Millennial Kingdom really mean? What do we mean? Let's define it. This viewpoint of theology means that Christ will restore Israel's dominance in the world and will reign as her king from Jerusalem for a thousand years, known as a millennial. Okay, a millennium. A, mil a thousand years is a millennium, so that's why it's called the millennial kingdom. Now, this in the Old Testament was referred to as the day of the Lord or the Sabbath rest of the earth because traditionally the uh, rabbis of the Old Testament uh, thought that it would be 2,000 years of the patriarchs up until the time of Abraham, 2,000 years of the Jewish age, 2,000 years of the age of the Gentiles. So that's each 1,000 years represented a day to them. So that's two days of patriarchs, two days of Israel, two days of the church, and then the seventh day would be the Sabbath time period of rest for the earth. So it was commonly called in the Old Testament prophecies as the day of the Lord. And we've talked about that before, and we showed you how the prophecies also say before the day of the Lord comes, there will be this great time of Jacob's distress, that seven-year period of God's judgment on earth that we've already discussed. Now, interesting enough, the millennial kingdom viewpoint that, that Christ would indeed restore the kingdom of Israel into a place of prominence and reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem in fulfillment of the prophecies and promises to David. This was the traditional viewpoint and then traditional interpretation of Old Testament prophecies. And it was taught by the original apostles. Uh, it was taught by the apostle Paul and the vast majority of the first century church. So this was the traditional concept all the way up until the second century, like I said. Now let's look at some scriptures that supports this traditional viewpoint, that the Revelation chapter 20 should be taken literally, and that Christ really will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem uh, as the Messiah and as the King of the earth, and this will be called the Millennial Kingdom. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. These will be his royal titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His ever-expanding peaceful government will never end. He will rule forever with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. This passionate commitment of the Lord Almighty will guarantee this. Interesting enough, we've seen the first half of this prophecy come to fruition. Uh, Jesus was born. We know that. Uh, this is a famous prophecy that we read every Christmas. And it's just like we say, the government will rest on his shoulders. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting, the prince of peace. All that came to fulfillment, the first half of it, when he was born uh, almost 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years now. But the second half of the prophecy has not come through. He is not reigning as a king over even any government, much less the government of Israel. Uh, his government is not ever expanding, and it's not a peaceful government. It hasn't ever existed in 2,000 years, not a time of peace. And he's not ruling on David's throne. That has not yet come about. So unless you want to disavow everything in, about God, and if you want to say, well, these prophecies don't hold true anymore, then you need to realize something. If God, God breaks his promises about Jesus reigning and restoring the kingdom of Israel, then your salvation is a promise he could break too, and is just as worthless. That's why we know, because our salvation is worthy. Christ died to save us and rose again to prove it. So we know because our salvation is real that these prophecies also will come and be fulfilled also in a real literal manner. Now let's take a look at another prophecy in the book of Isaiah. 
that is really kind of freaky because it describes a lot of what we've just studied in the book of Revelation about the time of Jacob's distress, that seven-year period of time of God's judgments. Listen to this, Isaiah 24, starting in verse 18b. Destruction falls on you from the heavens. The world is shaken beneath you. The earth has broken down and has utterly collapsed. Everything is lost, abandoned, and confused. The earth staggers like a drunkard. It trembles like a tent in a storm. It falls and will not rise again, for its sins are very great. In that day, the Lord will punish the fallen angels in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations on earth. They will be rounded up and put in prison until they are tried and condemned. Then the Lord Almighty will mount his throne on Mount Zion. He will rule gloriously in Jerusalem in the sight of all the leaders of his people. There will be such glory that the brightness of the sun and moon will seem to fade away. Now, this prophecy of Isaiah describes the seven-year period of God's judgment, what's known in the Old Testament as the time of Jacob's distress. It describes it very well, don't you think? And we studied about this in our last several sessions uh, in part two of our study of the book of Revelation. So this binding of Satan and his demons right before the Lord ascends the throne uh, seems to be real accurate because that's what Isaiah is saying. Note how he says that. In that day, the Lord will punish the fallen angels in the heavens and the proud rulers of the nations on earth. They'll be rounded up and put in prison until they tried and condemned. Then the Lord Almighty will mount his throne. Well, this is exactly what we're going to be learning next week in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. This is John and his vision, and this is what he says. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. So this, again, is a prophecy that's from Isaiah that's exactly what John was seeing in his vision. And unless you want to discount the value of the spiritual world, and God does have his prophets, then you really need to start looking at, at a literal interpretation of the millennial kingdom. Plus, get this, in this prophecy in Isaiah, in verse 23, he says, there will be such glory that the brightness of the sun, the, excuse me, the brightness of the sun and the moon will seem to fade away. Now, if this was all just a metaphor and it was the millennial kingdom was referring to the 2,000 year period of the age of the Gentiles, the church age, then wouldn't there be no sun now or moon? It says there'll be such glory that the brightness of the sun and moon will seem to fade away. But that's not true. We can look up in the sky and still see the bright sun and see the bright stars. So the glory of them has not faded away. And no metaphor really addresses that truth, I think, uh, in, a, in a sufficient manner. Obviously, I think these things are literal and they're yet to come. The millennial kingdom is yet to come. And it won't happen until after that seven-year period of God's judgment, the time of Jacob's distress. And it matches exactly with what John has been seeing in his vision and we've been studying. But now let's look at some teachings that Jesus had about the millennial kingdom. Let's look at Luke 14, where he makes it some really clear, along with some other passages that he really makes it clear. Luke 14, verse 12 through 15. Then he, referring to Jesus, turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a dinner, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will repay you by inviting you back. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the godly, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a privilege it would be to have a share in the kingdom of God. So here we see two things. Number one, Jesus himself said that, you know, at the resurrection, 
of the godly. So he was making a delineation, a separation between the resurrection. He was implying that there's at least two resurrections, the resurrection of the godly, and by you know inference, the second one, the resurrection of the ungodly, the evil, the unrighteous. And that was the traditional viewpoint that Jesus taught. And he says those words, the resurrection of the godly. If, like Amil people think, it's just one resurrection and then God sorts them out. No, that, Jesus wouldn't be saying that. But Jesus referred to the, ref, the resurrection of the godly. Then there's that second comment. A man at the table, when he heard Jesus talking about the resurrection of the godly, he said, what a privilege it would be to have a share in the kingdom of God. Now, note Jesus' reaction. He didn't say, hey, uh, the kingdom of God's now. Uh, you, you know, you're misunderstanding it. No, he left that assertion hanging in the air. Uh, in other words, the guy was looking towards it as a future event. And Jesus allowed that understanding to stand. So it's showing that Jesus is looking at the kingdom of God as a future event to be you know, fulfilled. He even substantiates that when he goes into a parable. He explains to this person, he says, hey, the invitations are going out now for the wedding feast. And when it comes time for the wedding feast, a lot of people aren't going to show up. Read that parable. It's kind of interesting. And that's what's going on now. The church age is sending out the invitations to the wedding feast. We're supposed to be spreading the gospel and inviting people to become part of it. But the wedding feast is not till later. And Jesus established that when they were looking at the kingdom of God as a future event in this conversation. Let's look at Mark 14, verses 22 through 25. As they were eating, this is talking about the Lord's Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and asked God's blessing on it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take, eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood poured out for many, sealing the covenant between God and his people. I solemnly declare that I will not drink wine again until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying that he won't drink of the cup again until he does it with all of us. And that's what he told the 11 disciples. I won't drink of this cup again until I do it in the kingdom of God, implying with the, the apostles there and also all those that would believe through their testimony. Hey, uh, this is uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke. This is substantiated and explained a little bit more. Again, this is talking about the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper he had with them, the Feast of Passover that he shared with them right before he was arrested. Luke 22, verses 17 through 30. Now, I'm not going to read the whole passage. It's too long. But let me just skip through a couple of verses. Luke 7, excuse me, Luke 22, starting verse 17. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and take, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's saying the same thing that was recorded in Mark. He's saying, I won't drink of this vine again. I won't drink of this fruit of the vine. I won't drink wine again until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, the kingdom of God hasn't come yet. Now skip on down, because in verses 19 through 27, the disciples get in an argument after Jesus says that. Because he said something about Jesus, uh, Jesus said something about one of you is going to betray me. And then they started arguing. And you know the story. Uh, Judas got up and left and, and did betray him. But then they kept arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus had to stop this argument about who was going to be the greatest. And this is what he says in verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So notice that, first of all, Jesus says, my kingdom. He emphasizes that there will be a kingdom in the future that he is reigning over, that he is ruling up in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But he also says that you will be sitting on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel so that the apostles are going to be part of the kingdom as well and reign with Christ. 
Now, Paul, uh, the second wave of apostles, uh, Paul was an apostle, uh, but he was part of the second wave. He was part of the fruit of the first Christians spreading the gospel everywhere. And you know the story, Paul met Jesus on, his, on the road to Damascus when he was seeking to go arrest and imprison more Christians. Well, he became an apostle and was a great missionary to the Gentiles, and he writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. You think you're rich, talking to the people there at Corinth because they were kind of uppity. You think you already have everything you need. You are already rich. Without us, you have become kings. He's being very sarcastic. But then listen to what he says. I wish you really were on your thrones already, for then we would be reigning with you. So Paul is clearly teaching that there will be a time in the future that all Christians, not just the apostles, but all Christians will be sitting on their thrones, reigning with Christ. And he says, I wish you were really on your thrones because that means I would be on mine too. We would be on our thrones reigning with you. He goes on to talk about this in the same epistle, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 through 26. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first. Then when Christ comes back, all his people will be raised. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind. For Christ must reign until he humbles all enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, if you read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you kind of get a feel for the whole context. This is just one small section of it. But basically saying, look, there's an order of the resurrection. Christ raised from the dead first. We know that. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And then when he comes back, okay, his people will be raised. Now, this could either be referring to the rapture or when he comes back to set up his kingdom at Armageddon. Uh, it could be either one. But then he says, look, after that, the end will come. The end of what? Well, the end of the age, you know, and, and, and the end of uh, this present earth and the new earth, and the new heaven will start. Eternity will begin. And he says it will start after he turns the kingdom over to God. You see, throughout the Bible, you'll see references to this, um, that God, the kingdom of God, you know, God's in control. But Jesus is going to come and set up the kingdom of God here on earth as the child, the firstborn of God, the son of God. Of course, we know the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all God. But Jesus will come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and be king of Jerusalem, and he will reign over earth. And then after his time is up and he's defeated all the enemies, including death, he will present all this back up to God, and it'll all be part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And Paul is teaching in this passage that this will happen after he has put down all the enemies, including death. Well, do we still die physical death? If the Lord tarries, we sure do. And if the Lord tarries, then you and me are going to die one day. We physically die. So he has not stopped death yet like he will one day. And we know he will one day because heaven is eternal. And we will have eternal life forever and ever up there. So this again, this proves the amillennial viewpoint and supports the millennial kingdom as a future event, but a real event that's yet to come. Now let's look over some, perhaps I think is some of the best evidence that Jesus was teaching to the apostles and setting down the standard that there was a future kingdom coming. This is in the book of Acts, verses, uh, it's chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 3, verses 3 through 8. Now listen to this. During the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. On these occasions, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. In one of these meetings, he was eating a meal with them. He told them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he promised. Remember, I have told you about this before. 
John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, are you going to free Israel now and restore our kingdom? Verse 7, the Father sets those dates, he replied, and they are not for you to know. But when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and will tell people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, let's look at this. First of all, we know when this is happening. This is after the resurrection. And after he presented himself to God, and he spends 40 days from the time of his resurrection uh, with the apostles, 40 days with them. Uh, and this is preceding uh, Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came on the church. So this is all during that in-between time, 40 days he spent with them. And like it says in verse 3, on these occasions, he talked to them about the kingdom of God. And then one day he's eating a meal with them. And he's, again, reminding them that, hey, you linger here a little longer. I'm fixing to leave. You linger here a little longer and the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then verse 6 says, look, they kept asking Jesus all during this 40-day period when he was talking to them about the kingdom of God. They kept asking him, Lord, are you going to free Israel now and restore our kingdom? You see, Israel is not an independent nation, like I've been saying. Ever since they came back from Babylon, they've been uh, a servant state to some empire, whether it be the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, or the Roman Empire. And they're saying, look, now that you've resurrected and the prophecy has been fulfilled, are you going to do part two of the Messiah's job? You've saved us. Now are you going to restore the kingdom? Now, this is interesting. Jesus says, hey, that's not for you to know the dates when that happens. You just keep in mind, you wait for the Holy Spirit, and you spread the gospel. That's your job until I come back. And that's our job until he comes back. But notice how he answered them. He didn't get mad at them, did he? No. He, you know, if, if, if he had been teaching that... His kingdom is a metaphor, like the Amil people want to say. He would have gotten very frustrated with them. He'd say, guys, I just spent 40 days with you. I've been telling you over and over again, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. He didn't say that, did he? He didn't, you know, rebuke them at all. He just simply told them the truth. I can't tell you when this will happen. That's for God to decide those days. You just focus on your mission on earth, and that's to spread the gospel. They asked him, Jesus, is, will you restore the kingdom now? He said, it's not time for me to let you know when. Only God knows. You do your job. So you see, he didn't rebuke them. He didn't say, hey, dummies, I've been teaching a metaphor. No. He obviously then, we have to logically conclude from his reaction and what was not said, that he was teaching them that, yes, one day he would restore the kingdom, set them free, restore the kingdom as an independent nation of Israel where the Messiah rules from. Now, I mean, you have to accept that viewpoint because had it been a misunderstanding of them, he would have corrected it and it would have been recorded because that is what he was there for, for those 40 days, to make sure they understood everything. And every other time they were confused in the Gospels, it's recorded that he said, no, you're wrong here. But here he doesn't. He just says, only God sets those dates, and I cannot you know, reveal that to you. You just focus on your job to spread the Gospel. That, to me, is some of the best proof that Jesus himself was teaching a future restoration of Israel, a future millennium kingdom where he would reign over the earth. Now, this brings us to a parable that Jesus taught. And with this parable, we're going to close. And this is kind of a long parable, so I'm going to put it up on the screen when I read it. But this is the parable of the king who went away and left his servants to do his business. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. 
And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Before he left, he called together 10 servants and gave them 10 pounds of silver to invest for him while he was gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say they did not want him to be their king. When he returned, the king called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what they had done with the money and what their profits were. The first servant reported a tremendous gain, 10 times as much as the original amount. Well done, the king exclaimed. You are a trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be governor of 10 cities as your reward. The next servant also reported a good gain, five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You can be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, I hid it and kept it safe. I was afraid because you are a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Hard am I? If you knew so much about me and how tough I am, why didn't you deposit the money in the bank so I could at least get some interest on it? Then, turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has earned the most. But master, they said, that servant already has enough. Yes, the king replied, but to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given. But from those who are unfaithful, even what little they have will be taken away. And now about these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them in and execute them right here in my presence. Now, the first thing I want to point out is that it says clearly that Jesus taught this parable to correct the impression that he was going to set up the kingdom right away. That's what it says in verse 11. He told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God will begin right away. Wow. So obviously a lot of people were thinking that the kingdom of God was now and that it was not a future kingdom. It was fixing to happen. He was telling them a story. No, it's going to happen in the future. And he gives a story here that's just so close to what really happened, looking back at it from a historical viewpoint. He talked about a nobleman, you know, Jesus. He's the son of God. And he leaves to go be made king at a distant empire. He's going to be, he's going to a distant empire and to be made king. And he's going to come back as king in this area. Well, he went to heaven. You can't get more distant than that. And the empire of God. And he's crowned king there. As we know, he's the king of kings now, and then he will return one day. Now, before he left, it says that he gave servants some money. Now, there's a similar parable in the um, other places of the gospel where they all have different money. That's telling a different point. This point is talking about the future kingdom, and he makes it clear that each one gets the same amount of money, 10 bags of silver is what this translation calls it, Yours may say something else, but 10 bags, or excuse me, 10 pounds of silver was given to each one of them. To me, that speaks of that we all have one life to live. We all start off the same, one life. And what are we going to do with it for Christ? So now the king comes back after he's been crowned king, and he wants to know how the servants have done with their money. And the first one says, hey, I did 10 times as the original amount. Okay, he started off with 10 pounds of, of, of silver. And if he did 10 times as much, that's 100 pounds of silver. So it's a tremendous gain. And the king says, well done. You will be responsible for 10 cities. And then the next servant reported uh, five times his amount. He did good too, but just not as good as the other one. And the, the king says, okay, you will be governor over five cities. And so this teaches that what we do on earth now as Christians will have an effect on our responsibilities in the kingdom 
of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Remember, we're all going to be reigning with him. We'll all be given duties. It's not just one of these days where we sit around and do nothing the whole time. God always wants us to do something. But what our responsibilities are in the kingdom, the future kingdom that Christ reigns on earth for a thousand years, will be determined by what we're doing for him with our life now. We all have one life. We've all been given the same amount. It's what we do with our life now that determines what our responsibilities will be in that kingdom. And then, of course, he teaches that there's one servant that doesn't do anything. Just like a lot of people turn their back on Christ, they have one life, but they don't do anything with Christ. They, they reject him, and they spend eternity in hell. And he even goes on to talk about let me talk about those people who didn't want me to be king. And that's exactly what we've studied in the book of Revelation, isn't it? That the whole seven-year time period of Jacob's distress, where the Antichrist arises and the one-world government, one-world religion, how everybody gets behind the Antichrist to rebel against Jesus because they don't want him to rule over them. And that's what happens right up until he comes at the Battle of Armageddon and defeats them. So this parable establishes very clearly, I think, that there is a future kingdom. Believers will reign with Jesus, and those who rebel against Jesus during that seven-year period of time will all meet a horrible end. So it establishes everything we've been teaching. And I think we need to realize that the millennial kingdom is not a metaphor. It is a reality. Jesus will reign on earth for 1,000 years. And his people will be given different responsibilities. And what your responsibilities are and what your rewards are will be based on what you're doing for Christ now. Now, brothers and sisters, that's what I want to leave you with. Remember how the apostles were talking to Jesus during that 40 days? And they said, look, is it going to be now? Is it going to be now? And he says, look. Only God sets those dates. You go about your business, spread the gospel. Wait for the Holy Spirit and spread the gospel to every corner of the earth. Well, we have the Holy Spirit now indwelling with you. Once you become a believer, you're indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and he wants you to do the same thing, spread the gospel. Now, a lot of people say the book of Revelation is all about when will this happen? When will this happen? When will this happen? And I shared with you many times the reason I started teaching this book is because there's so much false teaching going out there on YouTube and other social media that I felt we had to go to a biblical viewpoint. And one of the worst things I've seen is everybody keeps thinking, oh, it's got to be this time. It's going to be that time. And they keep trying to decide when Jesus will come to set up his kingdom, when the rapture will occur, when these things will be. Well, brothers and sisters, all I can say is we need to have the same attitude that Jesus had. We need to realize that all these events, those dates, when it will happen, are set by God. And in the meantime, we don't need to waste our time here on earth in fear or in worry or in speculation on when these things will occur. No, we need to take the advice that Jesus gave the original apostles. We need to get about his business. Just like it said in this parable, whatever life you've been given, go and invest it for the kingdom of God. Be a profitable servant for the king because one day he will come back. He will gather us up at the rapture. The world will be judged for seven years as God pours his wrath out on it. And one day after that, Jesus will set up his kingdom. We will reign with him. And what your responsibilities are will be based on what you've done in the flesh now. What you've done with your life now. And that means, brothers and sisters, we need to get serious about being Christians. It's more than just a bus ticket to heaven. We need to realize we need to serve God and go about the king's business. So until next time, keep that in mind and keep your eyes to the sky and read your Bible. Thank you for listening to Todd Talks Bible, sponsored by Church Discipleship Ministries. For more information, please visit churchdiscipleshipministries.com or check today's show notes for the link.
Our teachings are also available on YouTube. Simply search for Todd Talks Bible. I'm Brian Race, encouraging you to subscribe to this podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Also consider sharing this timely teaching with someone you believe needs to hear it. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.